0: As Lance mentioned, I've um, been at Four Oaks almost 20 years now, and I didn't always look like this. Um, I am, the, I am I'm the pastor of balding on our team. I'm the lead balder. But, Lance, you're, you're well on your way, so congratulations. So you got there even faster than, than I did. You know, 25 years ago this year, John Kaiser moved to Tallahassee. Four Oaks launched its very first worship service. And part of the original vision of Four Oaks and of John was that, that there would be a network of church plants in the greater Tallahassee area all for, this, all for the sake of winning um, this North Florida Panhandle region for Jesus Christ, to take the good news of Jesus to people who desperately um, need to hear it. And here we are 25 years later, and, and what's interesting, our vision is the same. Vision has not changed at all. Now, now the way that we want to run at that and go at that Is is has been tweaked and it's a little bit different. As Lance mentioned, about six years ago, our our elders and pastors came together to say, "What's the best strategy for reaching um, a a region of of 300,000 people? Um, Is it to build a a a singular, um, you know, uh, church vertically that kind of draws everyone in, or?" Is it better to go where people live? Is it better to go and be a part of their neighborhoods and to integrate ourselves in their life and to, in a sense, do what Jesus did, to, to be on mission and do that? So six years ago, that vision was hatched. We wanted to be one church in many locations. And as I look out over um, um, this, this, this audience today, I don't know half of you or even more. And some people might bemoan that and say, that's that's terrible. No, that's awesome. That is, a, that is a great thing. That means that Four Oaks Midtown is on mission. That means you guys are reaching into your neighborhoods and school and universities and classrooms and workplaces. And that, we just want you to know, Brooks Midtown, that as a leadership, we point to you. We point to the work that, that the Olams are doing here and the elders and say, we thank God for his grace. This is what it's about. You guys have been faithful in giving. You've been faithful in serving, faithful in bringing people. It's not even two years yet, is it, Lance? And this is beyond our wildest imagination of what God could do. And so we want you to, to, to know that our hearts are united with you. We've gotten such encouragement and confidence at what God's doing here. We're already like, where's the next place, Lord? Where, where's the next site? We want to we we do this again. Where's another area of Tallahassee that desperately needs the gospel? And Lance, we're going to take half your people to make that happen. Okay. Um, no, seriously, probably. Um, but even as we have this past season been really emphasizing the two locations part of that equation, you know, we're one church, but we're two locations. You're getting a beachhead, you're getting established. We believe as a leadership for the coming season, it's going to be really important to also emphasize this idea that we are one church. We we have a common theology, a common statement of faith, a common leadership, common resources. Um, we are we are a team. We are, we are we have a shared leadership structure, and we think there's real blessing in that. And as Pastor Lance mentioned tomorrow night, I really want to encourage you not to just sort of park this in the completely irrelevant to my life, but. This family meeting tomorrow night—it's about our statement of faith, it's about our theology, it's about what unites us in the gospel and God's word. That's very relevant. That's that's very timely. We want to talk to you about some of those things as a church, and so um, and we won't even heap judgment upon you if you put your kids in childcare, if you eat the, the dessert and the snacks, and then go off on date night. We won't—we will tell—we will not. And you come back at the end, and like and like even ask a question in the Q and A. That would actually be okay too. We would love for you to be a part of that. It's great to be here. Open your Bibles to Revelation 19. You know, this is the Memorial Lance Olam Water Cup. And Lance and I have been sharing that this morning. It's, it's like Blood Brothers and stuff. Anyway, It's really fun. And so, guys, as, if you've been here with us, you know we've been preaching through the Book of Acts at both campuses and about eight months into that series. But we're taking just a two or three, four-week break from the Book of Acts as a follow-up to Easter where we are wanting to talk about heaven. Heaven. No more neglected doctrine of Scripture, maybe, other than than the theology of the church, but heaven. And it's a series that we're calling the Shadowlands. And obviously that comes from a term coined by C.S. Lewis, where he called what we do here on planet Earth as part of the Shadowlands. That, That what we do here what we enjoy, the gifts that God has given us, even the very best things, our family, our friends, Midtown, these are just a shadow of the things that God has given for us to enjoy eternally in heaven. This is just a, this is just a shadow place. And so, so, so as we came off Easter and we really celebrated the fact that Christ has risen from the dead and he's ascended into heaven, it's very important and pertinent as believers to ask, what's next? Because even as Christians, it's very easy to say, you know, Christ died for me, um, you know, he rose from the grave, I have life, but that's, you know, all that sort of distant future stuff about him coming back, and how it's just kind of out of sight, out of mind, and we are really here exploring, hey, what happens next in heaven? You know, last week, Pastor Lance talked about that Jesus didn't go back to heaven just to sort of rest, although he did rest from his work on the cross, but in fact, he's working right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's advocating for you. You need to know if you are a Christian, you are in Christ, and you came in here struggling with sin, with struggle, something that happened this week, pain, a distressing diagnosis, you need to know that Jesus cares. He, he loves you, and he's advocating for you. He's praying for you. He's bringing your needs before the father and that is an amazing work. There's a, there's a second thing that Christ is doing right now that we want to dive into this morning and in fact it's simply this. He is actively preparing to come again. So I'm going to make a, a few cultural references this morning and you will click, quickly see that that my cultural clock stopped in 1999. So anyway, just as FYI but, you know, a, a few years ago, I'm a child of the 80s, you know, someone, someone, and I don't know who, but they should be held responsible, had the audacity to remake the movie Footloose. And, and, and I refused to see it because I refused to desecrate the memory of Kevin Bacon and that, and that, and all those awesome original 80s anthems, right? And so Footloose and Let's Hear It For The Boy, am I getting any amens at all? I like, hey, Skip and Lori are back there somewhere, Almost Paradise, okay, come on. But of course, the, the pinnacle, the highlight of the movie is when, is, in, is Kevin Bacon, he's singing and dancing around in this deserted factory, his stunt double is doing all these nifty, you know, ballet, you know, gymnastic moves, and they're blaring out, holding out for a hero, right? So, so Kevin Bacon, such a noble cause, right? He's ridden in to this rigid fundamentalist town, and now he's freeing, he's liberating these teenagers so they can dance again. I mean, it's very inspiring. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's corndog, it's country-fied, but you know, to be honest, it's actually a pretty common theme, this holding out for a hero bit, when you think about it. You know, the whole superhero movie industry, you know, Avengers 2 is about to be released. Do you realize you guys, and I say you because almost all of you went to see the first one, you spent $623 million domestically on that movie. The whole superhero um, industry is, is, I mean, we think about Batman and Captain America, Thor. I called him Thorn in the first service. We have a Thorn. Iron Man, which, come on. I mean, he is pretty cool. I mean, Tom Cruise is releasing his 18th Mission Impossible flick this summer, right? All with the same storyline. And here it is. Who is going to ride in and save the day, right? And the reason, you know, whether it's Neo or Kevin Bacon or Batman, whoever, the eight guys who played him, whoever it is, these are all archetypes of our cultural conscience, because we look at around, and we know two things. One, this world is a broken place. This place is messed up. Our lives are messed up. The world is messed up. People are messed up. There's injustice. There is poverty. There's sin. There's just, ugh. And we intuitively know that. But here's what we also intuitively know, for Oaks. We know that it is not within our power to change it. Someone is going to have to come in from the outside to fix this mess that we are in. In fact, John is, is writing to a group of New Testament churches who are in exactly the same place. It is 90 AD. And these are a people, if you read the whole book of Revelation, you know they are looking for someone to come in and save their day. They are oppressed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has their boot on their neck. Their property is being confiscated. They are, some of them are thrown into prison. Their, their houses, their household items are being taken away from them. Many of them are, are dying. They, are, they, they can't buy and sell food. They are incredibly afflicted. And they are looking around saying, who is going to come and fix this mess? Can you identify today? Can you identify with that question in your own life? Because here's the thing. They were Christians. They placed their faith in Christ. They knew Jesus. They knew he died on the cross. But for them, the second coming of Christ, that Christ, in fact, was going to be that person to come back, it was cognitive. But it didn't rest in any meaningful way on their souls. It had not penetrated their heart. It had not shaped their everyday life and reality. Let's be honest, for Midtown, we are a people in desperate need of this reminder this morning. It's Revelation 19, verse 11. We'll splash the text up. Therefore you, and John is speaking, and there's a vision, and here's what he says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking you to do only what you can do, and that's to open our heart And give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Lord, we want your coming back to not rest on us lightly. We want it to be a penetrating, powerful truth that will shape the way we live and think and move right now today. So Lord, would you do this work of grace for our good? Lord, so that we can know you better, that we can have joy in you, in lives that make a difference. Lord, please do that. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. You know, my, my parents are, are here this morning, and and they're part of my entourage. And so, Lance, Lance, does Lance have an entourage? You're looking at it right there, Lance. Okay, okay. Got an entourage. I just claim this whole side of the room that you're part of the, my entourage this morning. But, you know, my, 1977, I was 8 years old, and my dad, even though he doesn't remember it, God bless his soul, he took me okay, and a friend to see the original Star Wars, 1977, 38 years ago. And this was, this was, beyond, this was before the day of the multiplex and 20 theaters in one, in one spot and ordering tickets online. You, like, got your cash and you lined up in the parking lot. And, and I remember we, the, the night we pulled up, it just totally crushed our little hearts. I can't believe you exposed us to this, Dad. But he crushed our hearts because the line went out to the street and the, and the, the tickets were sold out. And we were told um, we were going to, to, to have to come back a different time. And can you believe it? 38 years later, okay, the Star Wars franchise is still at it. And uh, the, the very first trailer for The Force Awakens, the most viewed trailer in the history of mankind. Okay, the most of you, a lot of you are total nerds. I cannot believe that you've been watching this. A trailer, of course, what does a trailer do? It's designed to whet your appetite. It's designed to stoke your imagination. It's to spark interest. It's to give you a taste of what is to come. And guys, this passage is the trailer for the movie called The End of the World. That is what's going on. John is going to use imagery and poetry and and things that that make not a lot of sense in our culture, and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute, to to stir their hearts and their minds to what is to come. And so there's two things about this passage, about the return of Christ, that I believe are are life-transforming, they're heart-shaping, I believe if we can wrap our minds around them, they will shape our priorities. I believe they will shape the way we think about what's going on, not only in the world, but, but, but just in our very personal lives. And so there, there's, there's, there's two concepts. We're going to talk about time, and we're going to talk about truth. Just two points this morning, time and truth. You know, when we look at verse 11 here, in Revelation the book of Revelation up to this point Revelation is, is, is filled with a whole series of visions and part of what's happening metaphorically is that is that heaven what happens what's happening in heaven is sort of behind these closed doors and and curtains and and, and every so often God will peel back the curtains where and it will, he will allow John the last living apostle to get a vision or a view of what is going on. But that is not what's happening in this passage. And, and I'm indebted to John MacArthur who notes this. In this, in this passage, the doors of heaven for Oaks Midtown are not open to let someone in. They are open to let Jesus out. God is opening the doors Jesus is being unleashed by the Father to return for his people and to make things right. And it says in this passage that his name is faithful and true. And we say, why is his name faithful and true? Let's go back to when Jesus... At the end of his earthly ministry, when he was giving promises to his disciples about what would happen, he said, I want you to be reminded of something. In Matthew 24, it's up here. And Jesus is talking about his own future return. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. and Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, which is Jesus, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Even before Jesus is done with his first coming, he's already pointing to his second. He said, this is what will be. Acts 1.10. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, this is Jesus, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus had issued a promise. Jesus had issued his very word, that in fact, I am coming back. And here we have a vision that Jesus is being totally true to his word. Let me ask you a question. Where in your life do you struggle to walk with eyes of faith? That knowing whatever catastrophe literally in some of your situations has befallen you, that in fact Jesus has not forgotten. That Jesus in fact is on a is on a time limited schedule and the clock is ticking. You know, got, 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 our, got our kids here. And uh, recently, over spring break, we, have, we of course, went to um, Disney World. And when we were, you know, for our kids, the, the, the pinnacle of all things good in life is to ride the rock and roll roller coaster. Okay, anybody had this experience? Okay. And, and the fact that I like play Aerosmith on, on my iPhone all the time, that has nothing at all to do with that. And so they've been brainwashed in early age, and everybody gets excited, and everybody does their little stupid fast pass, advanced reservation option. Everybody's ready, and everybody's excited, and everybody troops across the park, only to get to the entrance and to find out what? Closed. And then you ask them... For how long and what do they say? Indefinitely. Okay, there is no more painful word in the house of mouse than to hear that word. Indefinitely. They are there to create some magic for us, and by gosh, we paid them a bunch of money for them to create some magic for us, and all we get is an indefinite. Okay? So when we hear about things in the news like we have over this past year, this is an example, hundreds of young Underage Nigerian schoolgirls kidnapped by Islamic terrorists, forced into sexual slavery. It's very easy to become very cynical about the return of Christ, isn't it? For a lot of us, that just, that's sort of postponed indefinitely. It's so far in the future, Pastor Paul, it really has no bearing at all in the way that I live my life or the way that I view life here's what this passage tells us, okay? The, ti- the, the, the timing of the turn of Christ is not indefinite. In fact, it's time-sensitive. And not only is it time-sensitive, the clock is ticking. At this very moment, the, the nature of this passage is indicating that the forces of heaven and Christ are even now preparing. They are simply awaiting the word. The word from the Father that now it's time to go. It is now time to be unleashed on mankind and to write everything that is wrong. And a lot of us, in order to wrap our minds around this, we have to reorient the way we think about time. You know, the psalmist and James talk about our life is a mist. It is a vapor. For Oak it is literally a, a drop of water in the oceans of eternity. You know, recently... Um, our son, Jack, decided that he was going to try to memorize pi. You know, pi, 3.14. And, you know, pi. And so Jack got to a 100 numbers in pi, okay? <laughs> um, just like his old man. And so Jack got to a 100 numbers in pi. Infinite, right? It just goes on infinitely. And for a lot of us, we have to remember that the thing that we so- put so much hope and focus and, and, and our very hearts and being into is merely a drop in the eternal oceans of, of God's great expanse. And that's why when Jesus says at the end of this book in Revelation 22, behold I am coming soon. Folks, do you believe that? In the twinkling of an eye like a in the night he is faithful and true, his return is not indefinite it is time sensitive, the clock is ticking and when he comes he will envelop and engulf all the time in a split second just, just a vapor but in the expanse of God's eternity, all consumed in him one application point. Because I think that understanding that Christ's return is not this indefinite um, sort of sort of distant reality, I really believe it gives us hope to not despair in this life. You know, you know, this, this past summer or this, this year ago summer um, was the twentieth anniversary of the trial of O. J. Simpson. And as part of remembering that, many of the families and the witnesses that were a part of the trial were interviewed. And one of those families is the family of Ron Goldman. And, of course, Ron Goldman was one of those, was the companion of Nicole Brown Simpson, who was brutally murdered along with her. And if you remember the, the trial, Ron Goldman's dad and his family were parked for 169 days on that bench as they sought justice for their son's killer. They were crushed and brokenhearted and grieving. And as you listen to, to Fred Goldman, Ron Goldman's father, 20 years later, it is obvious that he is in exactly the same place as he was 20 years ago. And 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 from one I want me to say this. Everything I'm about to say is not to disparage this family. What they're experiencing, I mean, some of you who have lost children, it's an untold grief. And the scripture tells us to mourn with those who mourn. And from a totally human perspective, what he continues to experience twenty years later is understandable. But listen to what he says. He says Goldman will not refer to O.J. Simpson by name, quote, the killer that's who he is, and he doesn't deserve to have his name spoken, and I'm never going to speak it. My daughter, my family, nobody speaks his name. He's the killer. Goldman said he and his daughter Kim wrote to Simpson once in jail. Kim and I sent him a card when he went to jail in Nevada wishing him happiness in his new home, and it was a pleasure to address it to his prison number and not his name. In fact, Kim Goldman wrote a book recently entitled, Can't forgive about her brother's murder and how it affected and impacted her life. I would submit to you the Goldmans are just being completely consistent with the idea that this age is all that life has to offer. They are despairing and they are grieving as those who do not have hope. And it's completely understandable because what they so desperately want rectified will never be rectified or fixed in their life. What they need is what you and I need, and that's the gospel. It's the hope of Christ. It's that Christ died, yes. He rose again, yes. We are renewed in him, yes, but make no mistake, Smith, down. he is coming back to fix everything that is wrong. Paul says it very well in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of Christ, if Christ is not alive today, we of all people are most to be pitied. tell what are you placing your hope in Today? There is only one hope that will not disappoint you. Everything else in this life will, and that's in Jesus. That he loves you, that he died for you, and that he's coming back for you. Second point, this one has to do with truth, and then we're going to be done. You know, I don't know how many of you are spending your quiet times in Revelation these days, okay? Um, You know, and and for for Revelation is one of those books that we just kind of like, you know, we come across passages like this and we don't know what to do with them. And I think one of the reasons Revelation is confusing to 21st century leaders is that we forget that this, that Revelation is actually a letter written to people just like you and me in, in the seven churches who have real problems and real issues in their life. And because of that, John uses imagery, he uses metaphors, he uses symbols, things that would most resonate with them in the context in which they live. So we said at the beginning, what sort of oppression and injustice were the people in Revelation experiencing? Untold, right? They were under the boot of Rome. There was legions of soldiers. They were being... um, Persecuted, thrown into prison, stolen from, killed in many instances, and you better believe the the readers of the Book of Revelation would would not have found this imagery strange at all. Okay, they would have totally resonated with this idea of a king on a white horse marching in to judge and make war on their enemies. Look back at the text for a second, and just look at look at some of the ways that John uses to describe what this Jesus will be like when he returns. It says he, will, he will have eyes like a flame of fire. He is wearing many diadems or crowns. He is in a robe dipped in blood. He has a sharp sword. He has a rod of iron. Jesus, make no mistake, was coming back to make things right. He was coming to punish enemies. He was coming to lift up the oppressed, to provide for the needy, to dispense justice, to rescue from danger. And now let me ask you this question. Where in your life are you metaphorically waiting on someone to ride in and fix the injustices that you have suffered? Where in your life? And for some of you, you will immediately that, whatever that thing is, that illness, that relationship, that financial thing, that it'll, it'll, it'll immediately come to your mind. Now think about this second question, what metaphor for Christ's return would most resonate with your soul? It may not be a military metaphor. Let me tell you about, let me say this though, those girls in Nigeria, this image of Christ returning will do just fine. If you were oppressed sexually in slavery and experiencing untold horrors, you will totally get this image. If you are someone in this room who've been physically abused, you have been sexually abused, this idea of Christ, the Avenger, this image will do just Fine. Maybe your spouse has been unfaithful. Maybe maybe there have been people, family members that have, have in your eyes destroyed your life. For you, Jesus is the great comforter and the shepherd who's coming to bind up your wounds and your soul. Maybe you are sick this morning. Maybe you have been given a terminal diagnosis for you. Christ is the great physician come to heal your body. Some of you are experiencing broken relationships even as we speak. For you, Christ is the great counselor. I don't know what that metaphor is for you. But it's that place where you are most desperately seeking Christ to come and fix what's wrong. And verse 15 tells us how that happens. This is, a, this, is a hard, this is a hard text, but I want to show us that there is great hope in this text. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Is that one on your precious moments prayer? guide, okay? I don't, I don't know. It's not, not on ours, okay? It should be, and let me, I'll, I'll tell you why. What does that even mean? Some of us are just so distant from, from ancient Middle Eastern culture, we have no idea what wine press and all that sorts of thing is. One of the movies that Susan and I saw many moons ago was A Walk in the Clouds with Keanu Reeves. And this is a, a movie where Keanu Reeves actually acted a bit. You know, he wasn't just muttering or groaning or saving Zion or, or surfing or something like that. And it was the story of a family who owned a vineyard. And so every year at harvest time, the grapes would be, would be brought in. And they would put them in a giant vat that was about half the size of this room. Tons of grapes piled on top of one another. And to celebrate the coming of the harvest, the family and the workers and all the people a part of this estate would take turns dancing and treading on the grapes. And it was, the, it was part of the process that as the grapes were crushed, what was left was the juice that would go into that year's vintage of wine. And when we think about this idea of grapes being crushed and juice being poured out as it relates to the wrath and the fury of God. Revelation 14, which is just a couple of chapters earlier from this, 14 verse 17, puts it this way. And I've got it on the board for you. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. So the angel swung his sickle, he's harvesting, right, across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, And threw it into the great winepress. And that winepress is called the wrath of God. See, the grapes, it's not just an imagery. Grapes represent people. They represent the people who have done injustice. They represent the people who have oppressed and who have abused and who have violated God's law. And who have enslaved young Nigerian girls or dispensed sexual abuse on some of you. And it says that God has taken those grapes and he is crushing them under his feet. Eradicating everything that is wrong and evil and it is part of his wrath. And he drinks the wine of his fury and it is a terrible thing. Now, let me just say this. Some of you are already probably saying, whoa, 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 whoa. okay, um, Pastor Paul, this just seems so graphic, so uncouth, so primitive, so barbaric, so unloving. Folks, let l- 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 me try to coach us in this and pass you a little bit. We live in a culture whose favorite sayings, when it comes across passages like this, is to say, I could never worship a God like that. Have you, ever, have you said that? Have you heard people say that? Have you read books for people who've said that? And it's often said when we come up against passages or ideas or, or truths That offer up a picture of God that doesn't comport with the spirit of this age. I could never worship a God like that really means that I, autonomous human being, have an idea about who God should be, who I want God to be for me, and if you offer up a contrary vision of that, I don't want to be a part of that. Rokes, that is very dangerous. And please understand that God will not be mocked. Who God is, is who God has revealed himself to be. And there is only one place in this world, one place in eternity to, to go to know who God really is. And it's in his word. We don't go to Oprah. We don't go to Rob Bell. We do not go to the, sadly, necessarily always, the Christian section of the bookstore even. This has to be the great shaper in our minds. and I am totally convinced so, the reason so many of us lose hope in this age and we lose perspective of what Jesus is coming back to do is because this has not shaped our thinking. That, that, that we have created a God that we can manage, that we can domesticate, that we've shaved, we've, we, we've rounded off the rough corners and we've removed the things that offend. Also that our friends will like us and the people in the book club will not think we're strange, okay? And the reality is, this is who God is. And let me tell you, let me tell you this. Do you know who gets passages like this? Let me tell you who gets passages like this. It's it's not comfy, postmodern Christians. Where for many of us, our greatest struggle today is that our, our high-speed internet is not fast enough. Okay, for a lot of us, that is our great problem today, and it's a problem. But let me let me tell you, But but let me let me tell you who gets passages like this. It's the Christian parents and families of the children who've been burned alive and beheaded by ISIS. They totally get this passage. It's not theoretical. David got it. You know, we read the Psalms and the imprecatory Psalms where David is calling down judgment on God's foes and to say, oh, David is so mean and David is so unloving. David was being hunted down like a dog by Saul as God's chosen in the wilderness. And his prayer of judgment against God's enemies was right. The more you suffer injustice, the more you just, your heart will totally resonate With passages like this. And let me just say this. In a room this size, of a couple hundred, I know this is true. There's probably some of you here who don't claim to be a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're new to church. And if you recoil at this idea of a God who inflicts wrath and pours out blood, let me just encourage you with this. I want you to consider the alternative. That a God who doesn't bring judgment is a God who cannot rectify wrongs. He is a God who cannot fix anything. A God who does not pour out wrath and judgment on sin and on those things that oppress is not a, a just God. He cannot address injustices in your life much less in this world. If there's no judgment, the Nazis get away with it. If there's no judgment, Ron Goldman's killer gets away with it. If there's no judgment, those who have hurt and abused you will get away with it. Brooks, this can be, while a hard passage, a great Passage of comfort and hope that whatever afflicts you and me and us and whatever is broken and wrong in this life, Jesus is coming back to one day make it right. You know, part of what we also have to reckon with, and I want to close with this, is that what Jesus is coming to judge, though are not just the wrongs and the sins that have been committed against us. What else is he coming to judge? The wrongs and the sins that you and I have contributed to. So you and I have contributed in significant ways to the pain and misery of others, have we not, if we're brutally honest? We are not a room full of victims. Um, Many of us have divorced our spouse unfaithfully. We have been unfaithful sexually sexually. We've neglected our children. We've hurt someone. We've abandoned. We've, we, maybe we've abused. And God is coming to judge those sins as well. And as we come to this passage, we have to know there is only one, there's only two alternatives. Either we bear the wrath of God or Jesus bears the wrath of God for us. I'm going to call you this morning, Four Oaks Midtown, to flee to King Jesus. To turn to him. To welcome and embrace his rule and reign in your life. To cast yourself upon his mercies. And the reason that we can run to Jesus today, even though we are part of the multitude that should rightly be being judged... Is that Jesus himself bore the wrath of God for us on the cross. Galatians 3:13, Jesus became a curse for us. He took what was ours so that we could gain what was His, the very righteousness of God. You know, on the, um, near the end of World War II, as the Allied troops were rolling across Europe in a quest to hunt down Hitler and the Nazis to bring the war to a close, they began to come across what we now know were concentration death camps for Jews as millions were exterminated. And the soldiers noted what a stark contrast there was between the Jews who survived, who saw the, the conquering American army as rescue and as peace and as restoration, and as their very life, and receive them with joy. But on the other hand, the Nazi soldiers that were fleeing, and for the, for them, the Americans were death, and trial, and judgment, and there was no middle ground. Folks, there is no middle ground for the return of Christ. It is either judgment for some, or joy for you. Jesus is coming back to right what is wrong, to claim us forever, to take us out of the shadow lands. And he calls us through his sign to be a part of his. Let's pray.